Welcome back. My name is Brian, and this is my Bible study podcast. So I apologize for releasing the episode a couple minutes late, a couple hours late, actually. Some uh, things popped up. They're outside of my control. But I hope that you've been enjoying our walk through the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Philippians. I also hope that you are reading along some with us and that you're seeing the same common threads that we've discussed over and over again. That chasing after the things of this world is futile. It's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. But the turning to Christ, turning to Jesus, and making what he has accomplished on the cross the foundation for your identity, that can produce peace and a joy that surpasses anything this world can provide. Today we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The chapter itself is just 18 verses, but there's a lot to talk about here. At its highest level, it talks about grand topics like death and wisdom. Wisdom has been a common topic the past few chapters, but that's intentional in this book, as this book is offering the benefits and the limitations of wisdom to some extent. It's also offering some application for wise living, and it's providing us with a realistic view of what we can expect in this life. This chapter picks up on that, and it declares that 100% you can expect death at the end of your life under the sun. That is a fate that is shared between the wise and the fool alike. Those who seek righteousness and those that pursue wickedness both will die one day. One of the most famous lines from this chapter is the declaration that time and chance happen to everyone. But the chapter also underlines the sovereignty of God. That even if we don't know what awaits us in this life, God does. That the wise are in the hands of God. And then the theme of wisdom is worked through at the end of the chapter in a couple stories about different people applying wisdom and foolishness with varying results and recognitions. These proverbs underline that wisdom is greater than strength or loudness, even if foolish and wicked leaders appear to win the day. I pray that this chapter would remind us of our own mortality in a way that leads us toward God and a life that seeks to apply biblical wisdom. I also pray that this chapter would encourage us in two ways. First, that even though walking in wisdom and truth might not provide worldly prosperity, it is still better than the alternative. And the second is that even through the ups, downs, highs, lows, praises, and rejections, we can rest that our God is sovereign and in control. Nothing surprises him. Nothing is beyond him. So I reflected on all that is and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil, and everything that happens under the sun, the same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, NIV translation. So here the author observes a basic fact of reality. No matter how we live, one day we will all die. It is a fate that awaits all men, and it's a consequence of the fall. Adam and Eve disobey God and are kicked out of the garden, away from the presence of God, and humanity now also suffers death. The author provides a contrasting list of traits that really delineate between two groups of people. Those who live with wisdom and an obedient fear of God, the people who are righteous, good, clean, and offer sacrifices. And then those who do not, those who are wicked, bad, unclean, and who do not follow the sacrificial system of the time. Both those with a reverential fear of God and those who had disobedient disdain for God, they're in the same boat here. Until Jesus returns to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, those of us on this fallen earth will perish one day. And I mean, we don't know the time or the place. Only God knows that. It's in continuation from the previous chapter. Ecclesiastes 8.8 starts, As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. Solomon observes this as another maddening evil that happens in the world. But he also acknowledges that there's one group in particular, the righteous who fear God, that they are described as being kept in the hands of God. So maybe death waits for all men, but this group that follow the primary theme of Ecclesiastes, to reverentially and obediently love God, this group falls into a slightly different category at some point. No one knows whether love or hate awaits them, it says at the end of verse 1. And this is tricky. It's a tricky turn of phrase in Hebrew. It gets translated a number of different ways. The NIV says that no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. The NLT says no one knows whether God will show them favor. The ESV says whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So even with the translation variants, the general idea is still that nobody can predict the events that are going to unfold before us. So it's God having the righteous in his hand, that doesn't mean that they're going to have a prosperous and successful and live wealthily and have nothing bad happen to them. That's not what this is saying. No one knows what's going to come. Barak proclaims that the events yet to come in a person's life under the sun, they remain unknown until they unfold in time. Meanwhile, the righteous and the wise will rest in the confidence that God controls what happens. He is sovereign. So the passage closes with the observation that while death might be an evil reality of living under the sun, another reality is that the hearts of humanity, they're also evil. Our natural bend is against obedience and righteous living. It's sort of a full circle argument here. As a result of the fall, we all die. The righteous and the unrighteous will face death, and that is an evil that's done under the sun. But in addition to death as an overarching consequence of disobedience in the garden, humanity tends to have little fallen evil hearts on our own, and that deserves ultimately for us to suffer death as well. This sounds harsh, but it shouldn't surprise us because it's a basic truth of the gospel. As Romans says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of our sin is death. This is why we need Jesus. This is why Jesus had to carry the weight of our sins on the cross. Not so that we would never die a worldly death, 
but so that we could then be raised up to eternal life with God after our life under the sun ceases. The reality of everyone is death, but through faith in Jesus, you can experience a resurrection to eternal life with him. And that's something we can find hope in. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, NIV translation. So, a live dog is better than a dead lion. In this world, the lion might be louder, stronger, and be considered to have a higher reputation. But upon its death, it's no longer any of those things. While a live dog is still able to strive forward, Rodmacher notes that a living, lowly creature is preferable to a dead, exalted creature. If you're seeking after worldly possessions, or fame, or popularity, or admiration, you can't take those with you. I mean, over time, 99.99999% of all people are left as just a footnote in history. The Bible doesn't point that out to discourage us, by the way. It points that out to encourage us to seek God's name above our own. The reality is that the living have hope because they can look toward their future. If they've placed their faith in Jesus, then they can hope for future eternity spent with God. If they have not yet, then there's hope because they can still make that decision. The Bible is very clear that the moment you die, you can't ask for a mulligan. The moment that you come face to face with Jesus is too late to then decide that Jesus is worth following. While living, we can still work to glorify God, to share his word with others, and to turn to him ourselves. I guess you could say that this passage underlines the urgency of life. It's something that's underlined by other authors in the New Testament as well. We're not going to get a redo. And where we place our identity in this life affects what occurs after death. This is why Paul pleads with his audience to build an identity founded in Jesus and to live a life for Christ. After all, for the Christian, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verses 7 through 9, NIV translation. Just throwing out a little reminder that the phrase under the sun, that simply refers to an existence in this world. It's a phrase used to denote this life and not the life that occurs after our death. Tom Schreiner writes that we must not overinterpret what the preacher says about death, as if he denies any future life. 
So being clothed in white and being anointed with oil, they're used biblically to portray a person being clean or pure, but also to represent joy and life affirmation. And that's fitting in a passage that's encouraging us to live the life that God has provided us with a joyful heart. The NIV translates a phrase, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you. That word meaningless is the word hevel, and it gets translated in other translations as vain or fleeting. And I think that it might convey the meaning of the word a little better here to use vain or fleeting. The point is to underline how fleeting this life is. God has given us this life, and it quickly passes us by. We shouldn't wait, saying that we'll enjoy life tomorrow at the expense of today. This entire section of Ecclesiastes reminds us that we don't have control of life and death. We should never take for granted what God has blessed us with right now. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10. So verse 10 here isn't saying that death is the end. But it is acknowledging that our work and our pursuits here under the sun, they're not going to be able to be continued after death. Don't put off until tomorrow what we are called to do today, namely to glorify God, living a life of reverent fear and obedience toward him. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. So, swift, strong, wise, brilliant, learned, or educated. These are traits that people tend to take pride in acquiring, and even more pride in displaying to others. They are traits that we tend to turn to during those times when we think that we're our own little gods. We sometimes think we can count on our strength, or our mind, or our skill to guarantee our own success. And the reality is time and chance, they happen to everyone. It turns out we can't use brains or brawn to control every situation. We are not self-sufficient creatures like we sometimes think we are. We are called to grow and to exercise some of the traits listed. But it's not for our own glory. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and strength for His glory. After all, He's the one who knows the hour, not us. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man, so I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words they're no longer heeded. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. So this is one of the issues with trying to pursue a life that desires affirmation from other people more than seeking God. If you are poor or disenfranchised or not represented by the people in power, then your wisdom can go easily unheard of or unrecognized. It doesn't matter if your hard work is successful or how much your plans and your strategies come to save the day. If you're not part of the quote-unquote in-crowd, you will probably not get the accolades for your wisdom or your work. This passage even goes so far as to say that the poor man's wisdom is despised. The Hebrew literally means to hold with contempt. All the major translations that I've read all translate it as despised because it's pretty spot on. This is one of those instances where it's a mincing of words. By the way, even though a person's wisdom might be ignored or despised or forgotten, we should still aim to apply wisdom anyway. I mean, this can probably be hyperlinked back to verse 3 about how men's hearts are full of evil and madness. It is fallen humanity's natural bend to seek power and to enjoy and institutionalize that power that we get. And then we try to diminish those around us who some might feel threaten that power. We see this from grade school to college to the workplace to the retirement communities. There will be a loud, boisterous fools who feel like they've made it to the cool kids table. And they will spend insane amounts of energy trying to keep others from getting there. This is why class warfare works so effectively in politics. If you can throw enough shade on some group, then you can diminish their voice. You can make it taboo to listen to the wisdom of society's marginalized and of the quote-unquote lesser-thens. The strong and powerful, they collectively flex their muscle to discredit the voice of the less privileged. The Bible offers a warning against the strong, and it offers encouragement for those who might be despised for their wisdom. It says that no matter what the real-world outcome is, applying wisdom is still better than flaunting foolish might and strength. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. So this passage directly plays off of the previous one, differentiating between the wise and the foolish. In the previous passage, the fools despised the wise and they tried to flex their strength. Here the wise are quiet and calm but they should still be heated over the shouts of the foolish leaders. Usually in an argument, the louder, more obnoxious group is not the voice of wisdom. And the chapter closes with something else that we see all the time. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good, it says. So wisdom is not just better than strength, but it's also better than weapons of war which we saw in the previous example when the wise poor man was able to save the city from the powerful invaders with the weapons. But, as we have all probably noted, it only takes a few foolish actions from one person to destroy a tremendous amount of good. I mean, I could list a million different types of examples here, but relational trust is probably a big one. If you are part of a group and you are trying to build a bridge to another group, Wisdom and action and peace can build trust, but it only takes one foolish sinner with no regard for applying wisdom to completely destroy any trust that's been built up. 
It's a sad and a scary reality of living in a world under the sun. So we're getting close to wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes, and we notice that this chapter, it's revisiting themes from earlier in the book, that death comes to all men, the righteous and the wicked alike, that the true meaning of life is to fear God and to find joy in what God has blessed us with, that man cannot control life's outcomes, and that applying wisdom is preferred over playing the fool, however strong or boisterous. The author of Ecclesiastes covers some proverbs for wise living, but it also maintains that life is not an algebra equation. Plugging in X and Y, it's not always going to equal Z. It's just not that simple. True contentment, lasting joy, resting peace, those come from enjoying what God has provided while remembering that God is the one that's provided them. One of the biggest temptations in life is to worship things in creation over our creator. The book of Ecclesiastes seeks to place a disclaimer on that temptation, a warning label, if you will, reading, I, the teacher, king in Jerusalem, full of wisdom and overflowing with wealth, I have tested the temptations of the world. I have experimented with all the pleasures in creation that I could think of, and I have found that they are vanity. They are just not worth it. The only thing that is worth our worship is God. He has provided us with the gift of creation. He has provided us with his grace and mercy. He has provided us with his son, given as a ransom for our sins. Turning to anything else is a mere vapor. It ain't the real deal. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the New International Version, or NIV, Bible Translation. Copyright 2001 by Biblica Inc. Next episode, we'll be back in Philippians. We're going to do the start of Philippians chapter 3. Until then, though, I love y'all.